Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, we did not have uh, newsletters over the weekend, and I apologize for that. But I wanted to uh, I wanted to unplug a little bit over a four day weekend. And but th- there were there were moments when I thought, okay, well, here's some crazy thing that I probably should do something about or keep track of. And then after a while, you realize, no, it's just more crazy things. It's just, I mean, how many times do you need to go, hey, the president said something really crazy, a batshit crazy, and here's another conspiracy theory, and here's the president of the United States sounding like the drunken crank at the end of the bar. And so here we are on Monday, and uh, if you're wondering what you missed, uh, good news is the president's attempts to overturn the election. And by the way, he's not even being subtle about that. He really wants to overturn the election, have been spectacularly unsuccessful. He's lost at virtual, well, he's lost at every level of the courts, admitting yesterday that he's not likely to get to the Supreme Court. He got slammed down by the Third Circuit Court the other day by a a uh, Trump-appointed judge, interestingly enough, which uh, continues his streak of judges going, what the hell are you talking about? Do you really think that we are going to disenfranchise hundreds of thousands of votes based on this legal dreck? We have a great piece up on the bulwark about the uh, latest filing uh, from Sidney Powell releasing the Kraken, which is probably crazier than you think it is. It, it, you, you probably think that it's bad. It actually turns out to be even worse. I think the, the line was, it sounds like something that was written at the after party after a three-day QAnon convention. So we are joined this morning, this Monday morning after the long holiday weekend by our good friend, David Priest, the Chief Operating Officer of Lawfare. Uh, first of all, good morning, David. How are you? Good morning, Charlie. I I am great. And I got to tell you, the last four days, so going from Thanksgiving through Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I think I probably consumed less news and paid less attention to the president's tweets during those entire four days than I do during the usual hour of uh, the last day of the last four years. And my soul is refreshed. I I actually feel healthier, smarter, wiser, more charming. All those things have happened because of the release of that burden of feeling like I had to pay attention to it. And then, of course, this morning, I catch up on uh, what he did in that interview, and I catch up on the Sidney Powell story in The Bulwark, Mm. and I just bang my head against the wall again, and it all goes away. Well, let's let's go for the the optimistic perspective that maybe yeah. this is a little bit of a taste of what life is going to be like post-Trump. If there ever is a post-Trump, if there ever is a moment at which we stop thinking and obsessing about this one-term president, and by the way, he is a one-term president who's been fired by uh, 80 million voters. Mm-hmm. He's having a hard time processing that. Although I, I do think the people who said, you know, we just need to give him space, give him time to process it. I wonder whether they're rethinking that today because this is just not going well. Yeah, his processing speed is like, uh, you remember old dial-up, like old AOL to log yeah. on? And yeah. that's kind of his his processing speed. And at least based on the tweets that I did catch up on and see, uh, it doesn't seem like there's any processing going on. And if anything, he's, he's, he's digging in the heels, um, shouting rigged into an empty room. And that's not, it's not been a helpful strategy, certainly for democracy. Enough people have talked about that. But even for the purpose that they stated, uh, of course, anonymously to reporters, that, oh, we just need to give him time to get used to it and he'll calm down. It's not even working for its stated purpose. So you're burning down norms and traditions and the future of democracy 
for a goal that is unattainable. You know, good job there. Well, you know, speaking of, of, of Georgia, Republicans are starting to realize, hey, maybe this isn't working out well. You, you still have that uh, special election for the Senate in Georgia on January 5th, and he's allegedly planning on going down there this Saturday uh, to campaign. And what is he spending the morning doing? Attacking the uh, Republican Secretary of State and the governor. He's attacking mm-hmm. the governor, Brian Kemp. So what is he going to do when he goes down to Georgia to campaign for the Republicans, except to spread more, you know, more of this toxic sludge, maybe a little bit counterproductive. It's one of the few cases in the last few years, Charlie, where we're actually seeing them reaping what they sowed. Because yeah. if you if you cast doubt on the election over and over and over again and say it was rigged and insist that there's been fraud, some some percentage of the population, let's say in Georgia, believes that, actually thinks that that is true and thinks that this is an injustice and it must be fought and we're going to go to the bitter end. Okay, that's fine. Um, most of the people around the president know that's a joke, but they're, they're still doing it. But what happens to the people in Georgia? That's when you get Ronna McDaniel going and giving a speech about we need to focus on the Senate elections. And the people of Georgia are shouting her down saying, but what about this fraud that's been perpetrated on the president? We have to fight that. And she's saying, oh, well, we'll address that later. And you can understand the cognitive dissonance that comes from the sheep who say, but but we have been told that this election, which already happened, is fraudulent. Shouldn't we take care of that first before we move to next month's election. Hugo Chavez is controlling the voting machine. You just told us that Hugo Chavez is flipping all the votes. Why should we bother to vote in one of these Hugo Chavez controlled voting machines? And she's like, yeah, it's like, well, that's the part of the problem. If other people are not in on the joke, I mean, there's this huge group of people who are like, they're, they're, they're not, they're neither, you know, smart nor they're neither dumb nor crazy. Um, uh, who kind of know what's going on here, but figure they're going to go along with the con because, you know, they're going to be people who will believe it. And then they're kind of surprised that, hey, there are people who kind of believe this. You should and never it's, fully it's, believe your own propaganda because once you do, you start acting based on it. And that's the case of Georgia is you've got people, yeah. you, you, you've, you've put yeah. in their mind this propaganda, they're acting based on it, and then they're discovering, well, that gets in the way of what our goal is, which is to retain the Senate in, in January. So let's talk a little bit about the president's, um, again, th- th- this is a four day long, mm-hmm. crazy uh, binge by the president. I mean, he probably had one of the worst Thanksgivings by any president ever. So we're just going to move ahead to that. So he goes on Maria Bartiromo's uh, show yesterday, and there was a time when she was considered kind of a crack reporter. She just lets him go on and on and on and doesn't push back. So let's let's play the first one where he where he just can't believe, you know, his, he just can't believe that there's any way that Joe Biden got more votes than, than, than Barack uh, Obama, who he refers to as Barack Hussein Obama. Let's play that. Ballot boxes. And they use COVID as a means to stuff the ballot boxes. Joe Biden did not get 16 million more votes than Barack Hussein Obama. He didn't get it. Joe Biden did not get... 14 million more votes than Hillary Clinton. And by the way, he didn't beat Obama in the black uh, communities. You go to some of these communities where Obama is very, very popular, and he beats them in some of these communities, but all throughout the rest of the United States, in a black community, he does 
he does actually poorly. He doesn't do very well. But he beats Obama well, in swing states. Now, think of that. He beat Obama in swing states. You know that didn't happen. They stuffed the ballot box. Everybody, everybody. knows that. This is this is some of the, uh, you know, impossible statistics that we have found. And this is from the Federalist article. Uh, they call it Biden magic. And they list uh, a, a number of, of, of ways that Joe Biden magically outperformed election norms. They include 80 million. See, wow. this is you reached a certain point. I don't even know what you would call it, where you have Maria Bartiromos citing an article from the Federalist in an interview with Donald Trump. I mean, it's like it's like this this thing eating its eating itself. And by the way, this has been fact checked over and over again. No, um, no, he did not. No. Joe Biden, Joe, Joe, Joe Biden um, did not underperform Hillary Clinton in every major metropolitan area around the country, except for Milwaukee, Detroit, Atlanta and Philadelphia. It's just not it's just not true. But it is interesting, David, that that they're, they're at they've been flinging one conspiracy theory after another. But what it comes down to is that Donald Trump just cannot believe that he got beaten so badly by Joe Biden, that Joe Biden, this guy he's been telling everybody was senile, that was so weak and everything, that he actually got 80 million votes. So he's basically reduced to saying he couldn't possibly have gotten 80 million votes. There's no way it happened without any evidence whatsoever. It's it's possible that that Trump can't believe it. It's possible that Trump thinks he must have won because he's Trump. I'm not convinced of it. I still don't know that 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 it's really a strategy. Um, I'm, I'm not sure he's really that thoughtful. Um, I think he's just in, you know, he's Twitter troll mode. And when, when your brand is outrage, when your brand is bring the energy, uh, remember his criticism against Jeb Bush back in the primaries, no. it wasn't a substantive disagreement for large part. I mean, he, he criticized the Iraq war with which Jeb Bush had nothing to do with except his name. Um, he criticized Jeb Bush for being low energy. Um, energy is his brand, outrage is his brand. And maybe just all these shouts of rigged and can you believe this? It goes along with birtherism and birth certificates. It goes along with Hillary Clinton. It, it's a pattern. And honestly, I don't like trying to get inside his brain. It's a, it's a scary place. But I'm not convinced that he really thinks he won. I think he, I think he just likes ranting about it. It's impossible to tell um, with, with, with him whether or not this is just the, you know, the launch of the next new grift or what we mm -hmm. do know about him is that he's obsessed with not being a loser. You know, that going back to being a child, that he never wanted to be a loser. He divides the world into winners and losers. And and this is traumatic for him. Uh, and so he's doing everything possible to to deflect it. But um, I, I think he. He had some certainly un unfortunate moments over the last uh, couple of uh, days, including when he sort of lashed out at uh, at a certain Twitter meme, which I'm not going to get into, said that, that because of national security, they needed to eliminate Section 230 because people were doing a hashtag about him. And then, of course, he had that picture at the little table, the little kid's table. It was that, so cute. I, mean, I actually thought it was such a good little was, pupil. I thought it was was Photoshopped. And then, and then, of course, look, if you're Donald Trump, you know, and certain things are trending. You shouldn't be using terms like big dump. I'm just saying it just it's it's not it's OK. Let's play that one. Here we go. Yeah. And what happened if you watched the election, I was called by the biggest people uh, saying congratulations, political people. Congratulations, sir. You just won the election. It was 10 o'clock and you looked at the numbers and I'm sure you felt that way. 
this election was over. And then they did dumps. They call them dumps, big, massive dumps uh, in Michigan and Pennsylvania and uh, uh, all over. If you if you take a big, look. massive dumps, it's sad. I, I shouldn't be laughing because it is at some level. It's sad. I mean, if you if you take this out of context and you just listen to it. Um, I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of a sad old man seeking attention, and there's there is something mm-hmm. at a human level that's compelling about it. If you just put aside all the monstrosity of the last few years, but yeah, yeah raving about all the big dumps in uh, the swing states. Yeah, I, um, I would love to know who the, the the big political people who called him up and said, "Sir, and what Corey Lewandowski." Maybe, the, yeah. I mean, no, you're you're gone. No, you're you're Don, down past Don the A, B, and C list. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't you know, know Rudy Giuliani. There's there's another aspect of this, Charlie. That I, maybe maybe this is out there in the ether, and I've picked up on it somewhere. So I'll, I'll give credit if uh, if anybody can find the credit. Please do give credit if if this is a borrowed idea. But it occurs to me that Donald Trump is raging against the absolutely unfair conditions in in multiple states, and how could this happen? And Biden couldn't have done this, and the election was rigged basically saying the entire election infrastructure is corrupt. Um, and it's an entire election infrastructure during his administration. Yeah. And yet he's claiming that the election that brought him to power, there were, there were nothing was wrong with that. He called it the perfect election. Everything went well for him. And that was run by Barack Obama. So the logic of this, Mr. Trump, is that are, are you saying that the election infrastructure as run by Barack Obama was was perfect and the election infrastructure that that you oversaw was inherently rigged and flawed against you i mean either you're incompetent um or you're self-destructive and I, i'm not sure which is better well this is why none of it makes any sense because if 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 in fact we have become a third world country in terms of elections it would have happened in the last four years under his watch so that's mm-hmm. number one to your point number two the fact that nobody's questioning any of the down ballot uh election results because of in course. theory if there was this massive uh hack attack stuff ballots mm-hmm. uh you would have had more uh democrats who had been elected um, also, you can't think too hard about some of this stuff because in Georgia, where they went through and they hand counted the ballots, they've done an <laughs> yes. audit of the ballots, and he's still yeah. screaming that he won, that the that the results were were switched in the machines. I mean, it, these are reality checks. These are just absolute facts. You can fact check it all day long. So he just keeps moving from one thing to another. Unfortunately, and I, and I wrote this this morning in my newsletter. This this election trutherism is going to be the basis of Trumpism right. from this day forward, and it right. will never go away. And you do have some people who you know are, are batshit crazy. Yes, you also have people who are just incredibly gullible who don't understand that there were no dumps. That these were the these were the election results. Everybody knew there were going to be late uh, absentee ballots that were counted. And then you have the Republicans who know better. Who are, you know, and, and who could be standing up at this moment for the integrity of our democratic process, who are just living in fear of his tweets. And then, of course, you have all of these really cynical politicians, the Marco Rubios, mm-hmm. the Ted Cruz's, the Josh Hollies, the Rand Paul's, oh. you know, the some of these, you know, could, uh, Newsmax who figure, OK, we don't necessarily believe it, but we're going to ride this. We're going to ride this tiger. We're going to ride this as far as long as we can, because this is in our interest. And even if it undermines democracy, we see our main chance. 
Yeah, I, I liked your taxonomy there, Charlie. It really laid out for you. The problem is they intersect, and they I do. I can't tell you where uh, almost anyone is within one of those categories because they seem to bleed over to the others. Uh, it's hard to tell who the true cynic is versus the true believer when some of the rhetoric is the same. And I, I'm not sure that it matters ultimately. I mean, it still it still contributes to the same pathologies that we're going to be dealing with in in two years and four years and and from here on. We did not have the decisive result that people hoped a repudiation of uh, all of Trump's supporters and enablers. That did not happen, which in a sense gives them oxygen, whether they are the cynic uh, or the true believer. Uh, they think they're on to something. Um, we, we do face the bigger problem, of course, which is what happens in the actual administration uh, of, a, of a Biden presidency? Is Does the, does the Trumpist gene in the Republican Party simply become an absolute obstructionist gene, uh, picking yeah. up on some of the uh, McConnellism of the late Obama administration, but taking that to another level. Uh, at that point, you know, we, we need to have a system that has checks and balances. We want to have opposition to policies argued in Congress. That's great. That That's the way we do things. Uh, we do not want to have knee-jerk rejection of anything that Team X says because we are on Team Y. Nothing gets done that way. Um, I think it's telling that you had a uh, <clears throat> Republican president several decades ago, George H.W. Bush, who had Congress controlled by the other party, and yet he was able to get through legislation, um, environmental legislation, um, disabilities legislation, things of that sort. Things can get done when you have principled compromises without compromising your principles. That's not what people are talking about now. Uh, if this Trumpism continues in the act of governance, you're simply going to have obstruction for the sake of obstruction. And that's not good for any of us. Yeah. And I, I, I think that people are, you know, who have been thinking, well, we'll be able to roll off this tiger when it's convened for us or finding out that that's going to be difficult. I wonder how many of these folks are going to feel the need to boycott the quote unquote inauguration, whatever that inauguration mm -hmm. is at this point, because any cooperation at all with the Biden administration becomes a matter of disloyalty. So I'm, I'm, I'm noticing a couple of uh, tweets out, uh, National Review as a piece uh, that really says, you know, it's time to really put an end to this craziness. And hmm. they, uh, they, they write, it's hard to find much that is remotely true in the president's Twitter feed these days. It is full of already debunked claims and crackpot conspiracy theories about Dominion voting systems. Could I just point out that this was a magazine that ran a piece a few weeks ago, maybe Trump, all the smart people who are saying that that, uh, yeah, you know, there are problems with his Twitter feed, but at least he's better than those socialist Democrats. So let's give him four more years in power. I'm just I'm trying to imagine the people who really thought that it was a good idea. And there's like 70 million people who thought that looking at Donald Trump, seeing Donald Trump, knowing Donald Trump's character, because nothing is really inconsistent about this, um, thought back then, let's give him another four years or who are watching him right now undermine the election doing things that a lot of people, a lot of smart people said, oh, he will never, he will never not uh, acknowledge the, the result of the election. He would never try to overturn the electoral college. Well, he's doing it right now. You still think he should get four more years? And will you support him if he runs in 2024? Because a lot of people are watching what's happening right now and will say, yes, let's restore him four years from now. Okay, so David, let's uh, just turn the page a little bit today. Today is the first day. 
that President-elect uh, Joe Biden and the the Vice President-elect will be receiving the Presidential Daily Brief, the PDB. Now, this is right in your wheelhouse. So let's talk about this. They have not gotten it until now. What are they going to be seeing, hearing today? Yeah, let's let's take one step back to kind of define the the PDB in the first place. So, the President's Daily Brief is the highest level intelligence document produced in the U.S. government. It is tailored specifically for the person who occupies the Oval Office, uh, not in terms of telling him what he wants to hear, but in terms of telling him what he needs to hear. So the analysts from around the intelligence community gather all of the information that they can from clandestine collection, as well as from open sources, and try to describe what's going on in the world. Uh, try to describe the North Korean nuclear program, try to figure out what's going on in Chinese politics, in Russian military developments, as well as, you know, transnational issues like terrorism and uh, the pandemic. And the idea is to prepare the president each day to have the best possible picture of what's going on in an uncertain world in case a threat comes up or an opportunity arises. It's not always perfect. But the goal is to present timely, accurate, objective information to narrow the range of uncertainty, to enable better national security decision making. And this has been going on since 1964. Uh, Lyndon Johnson got the first PDB. And every president has taken it in one form or another and benefited from it. In the Trump era, we've had reporting suggesting that the president's daily brief has been tailored to the president as it should be. And in this case, it's probably been shortened. Indications are that Trump doesn't like to read long documents. So it's presented probably with more bullet points than with long text articles. The reporting suggests there are plenty of charts and graphs and pictures. (laughs) Um, We don't need to take that to the comical extreme of pretending that it's a coloring book or pretending that it's just cartoons. Um, that, That does a disservice, honestly, to the intelligence community who I know from experience, you know, we could present very important, complicated arguments very clearly and in very short form when we needed to. If you needed to get the North Korean nuclear program down to one or two sentences, you would lose a whole lot of nuance, but you Mm -hmm. could do it. So there's no doubt in my mind that the PDB is still getting key intelligence judgments to the president and those around him, even though Trump is a unique customer. Now, bring in President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. In Biden's case, he saw the PDB for eight years when he was vice president under Barack Obama. And Obama's PDB, by all measures, was a robust document. Uh, Obama liked to read. He did also take regular briefings with his intelligence community officers. But most days, uh, he did not see them, and he read the book. It was an extensive document with lots of text, lots of articles. That is what Biden is used to seeing. That's what he thinks the PDB is, because that was his only exposure to it. Today, he's going to see something that probably looks a bit different. Hmm. But that's not all he's going to get, because the intelligence community officers who are on site there to support him, to brief him on the PDB are also going to be supplementing the PDB as they always do for presidents-elect during the transition. Because you have got a PDB that has an article today on something going on in some country of the world 
that builds on perhaps three and a half years of daily stories to the president. The president is already up to speed on those. Joe Biden hasn't seen any of that. So the briefers put together supplemental memos, facing pages, or just oral briefings to say, Mr. President-elect, you're going to read this story about X, but you're going to need this background to understand how we got here. How did we get from where you left things uh, four years ago to what you're reading today? So he's going to get that background and he's going to get filled in on that. Um, I think he'll have a very um, steep learning curve because there have been a lot of developments internationally in the last four years. But I think he's going to race right up that curve because he has the experience with intelligence to know what it is, to know what it isn't, to know how to use it, to know how not to use it. Um, Senator Harris will probably have a little bit more getting used to it because the PDB is not made available to the Senate. So even on the Intelligence Committee, she'll, she will not have seen it, but she will have been certainly made familiar with high-level intelligence and the kinds of judgments and the kinds of language she'll be reading in there probably won't be that much of a surprise to her because they certainly would be consistent with what she's been receiving on the Intel Committee. Well, I would, I would think that one of the first questions that, that uh, both of them would, would have is, what is Iran going to do over mm-hmm. the weekend? It appears that the Israelis assassinated the chief nuclear scientist in Iran. Apparently, they had like a dozen assassins. Um, This is, again, not a military figure. Uh, He's not a political figure. He's a scientist. Mm -hmm. And the the Iranians have to make kind of a choice now, right? Because uh, they know that, that if they overreact, if they retaliate, it could make it harder for them to be able to deal with the incoming Biden administration. In fact, there was a lot of speculation over the weekend that one of the goals of this was not just to kill this scientist, which is an end in of, of itself, but also to make it much, much harder for the Biden administration to walk back some of the Trump policies involving Iran, including the nuclear deal. So that's on his plate right now, isn't it? I mean, that's got to be something that they're going to be discussing today. It would It would stand to reason that the president's daily brief would have intelligence about Iran and its reaction to this act. Uh, If there were in any way, if it were an Israeli act, which I don't know, but the reporting suggests it was, uh, it's possible that there could be some assessment of that claim. If it was something that the Israeli government discussed with any elements of the United States government in advance, that's the kind of stuff that's usually not in the president's daily brief, because that's stuff that would have been discussed separately. That's not an intelligence assessment. That's actual uh, policy discussions. But it would it would make sense that Iran would be a frequent topic in the PDB lately, and, and certainly now to assess what, what are they going to do in response to this, or how would they be likely to react if something else happened like this. The benefit for Joe Biden right now is that he doesn't have to act on any of it today. That is, he can soak in the Mm -hmm. intelligence. He can read it. He can ask his briefers questions. He can get supplemental information. He can get up to speed without having the burden of acting so that when on January 20th, he does take the oath and become commander in chief, he can be well prepared to do what he needs to do then. And you're right. He may inherit a mess because something that we can't rule out at this point is that Trump and perhaps some of his senior most advisors are actively seeking to make a mess that the Biden administration will have to deal with simply for the sake of punching Biden in the gut. 
um, <laughs> horrible for American national security. It's bad governance. It's the kind of behavior that is abhorrent, but it is certainly, we can't rule it out right now that they're okay, going to do so- things deliberately to make things hard uh, for Biden when he comes in. Okay. So now this is a tricky question here. So you're the Iranians and you want to know, okay, what are the prospects of what, what Joe Biden is going to do? Uh, how would he react to certain retaliatory steps that we would take? Same thing going on in the Middle East where we're hearing that Jared Kushner is off talking to the Saudis and, you know, trying to do something in, 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 in the Gulf. What is the standard for back channel communications? And and I'm and I'm keeping General Flynn in 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 mind here. Um, you know that he that he got in that he got in trouble for some of the communications. So I mean, at some point, would the Iranians wouldn't the Iranians want to have some sort of a back channel communication to the Biden folks, thinking, okay, what are you guys thinking? What would what is your reaction going to be to all of this? Wouldn't it be rational for the Biden people to have some sort of a back channel communication telling the Iranians this wouldn't be a good time to overreact? So how does that work out? How do you do that without ending up in the situation that General Flynn was in? Well, here's how it's supposed to work is Mm -hmm. through the uh, unlocking of the uh, Presidential Transition Act. That is that whole GSA ascertainment issue. The Biden transition has access to Uh, classified spaces, has access to government translators, and now the phone calls with world leaders and conversations with foreign governments can be part of an organized process that is not necessarily in coordination with or fully in coordination with, but certainly is not out of step with the current administration. So what you have ideally in the transition is those phone calls and those conversations um, being done at the same time that you have the the landing teams of the new administration going into the national security agencies and departments, talking to them about what are the policies? What was the last conversation with this leader? What are the things on the agenda? So that there can be, if not a seamless transition, at least a rational yeah, but, transition. But are they allowed to talk with them? Absolutely. Um, okay. So, but, but remember, absolutely. there was all this talk about the Logan Act and everything. So, yep. Flynn's problem was not that he was communicating with the Russians; it's that he lied about it afterwards. Right. That was that was the biggest issue. Okay. Um, okay. There also is the issue of whether he was freelancing um, at some point. That is, whether it was an official act of the transition or whether it was him trying to use his new position so, to do some personal lobbying. Those are always going to be issues, and the biggest one that ever came up was with Nixon, with the outgoing Johnson administration and Nixon basically trying to negotiate with the Vietnamese behind the back of the current administration. Um, that's generally them, regarded and, and as a bad idea. And telling them not to sign a peace deal, which right again on. would have been feels feels wrong to yeah. do that. But so there's there's nothing that would prevent Joe Biden from saying to uh, Ron Klain, "Hey, would you you know get somebody on the phone and tell the Iranians please don't blow anything up." Is, is, I, is there a- and ideally that is done with the State Department, the current State Department. Um, letting them know we are calling the Iranians, we are talking, we're going to deliver this message and having everyone in agreement about how that works. Once you don't have agreement on how that works, it opens up all of these questions you're asking, which is 
wait a minute, are they trying to run a shadow foreign policy? Are they undermining the current well, commander in chief? Well, this is chief? what I'm getting at, actually, because okay, let's let's. I'm, 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 there's a lot of um, make believe here. I yeah. understand that that I'm I'm just asking these. I'm just asking questions. <laughs> so, given the fact that clearly uh, Biden and Trump are not on the same page when it comes to say the, the Iranian policy, and the fact that he would be very very reluctant to go through uh, Mike Pompeo's State Department at, mm-hmm. at this point. He has the facilities to have these communications. So what if they are not on the same page and yeah. he does still want to communicate? I guess I'm, I'm, I'm trying to establish what you are permitted to do. Um, he's a private citizen right now, yeah. but clearly what he, you know, what he has to say would be of great interest to our allies, our enemies who are trying to determine what our what our plans are, what our tendencies are at this point. So yeah. is 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 it possible that there is a shadow foreign policy? And is there anything wrong with that at this point? Here's what I presume Joe Biden would do as an institutionalist, as somebody who understands the machinery of government over many decades of, of being in it, is I suspect that in that case where the the Trump administration made clear it would not cooperate, it actually doesn't want this, that any communications that Biden had with foreign leaders, let's say Iran, um, would not be explicit. That is, he would not be trying to get a message to the supreme leader in Iran saying, I want you to do X, Y, and Z before January 20th. And I promise you after January 20th, I will do A, B, and C. I just don't picture Joe Biden doing that because then it does raise issues of, wait a minute, you know, are you doing this the right way? And for somebody who campaigned about a return to traditions and norms that have been bedeviled in the last four years, uh, I think it would be uh, hypocritical to then go around and do some of those things. However, you can probably get halfway there without crossing any lines. That is, you can probably talk to the Iranians and say, we want to move forward on the issues that we disagree on but there are some things that are just unacceptable and they're unacceptable right now. And they're unacceptable in my administration too. That is try to show continuity, but get the channel of communication open. That would be okay. But there's a lot of gray area here, Charlie, because there isn't a lot of settled law on this issue. Right. And there aren't even a lot of good political norms and traditions on this issue because most often incoming administrations um, do benefit from a helpful transition. I mean, you had you had administrations that really, really didn't like each other. For example, Clinton handing off to George W. Bush after the contentious 2000 mm-hmm. election, Bush handing off to Obama, and Obama basically ran on not being Bush. And then, of course, Obama to Trump. But in all of those transitions, the outgoing administration cooperated with the incoming administration to try to make this work as well as possible in November, December, and early January. Um, we don't know exactly what's going on with the landing teams this year. We don't know how much assistance is truly being given. I suspect it's more than we're being led to believe because the vast majority of people in these agencies and departments are career officials who have an interest in seeing things go smoothly in the future. But we just don't know. In the absence of that, we're, we're doing a lot of guesswork right now. No, um, and, and, and this, this, may, this may be one of the the few transitions where the administration is trying to sabotage its successor. The 
the, the Trump transition was notoriously a disaster, but most of that was self-inflicted. It right. was, uh, you know, f- firing Chris Christie uh, right after the election, throwing away all of his plans, not having anybody um, assigned to any of these these teams. You know, it is interesting watching um, Biden putting together this administration and, you know, not trying to get my hopes up about this, but it feels so ridiculously normal. Now, I, I, right. I know that, you know, there are some Republicans, the Marco Rubios, who are sneering about these, you know, Ivy League types. But what really strikes me is how experienced these people are, mm-hmm. how, um, you know, most of them strike me as very pragmatic, um, very knowledgeable. Um, there, there is going to be a steep learning curve, but these people have been there that I get the sense of they watching the names that that when they, they go into their offices, it won't be for the first time. That's They'll right. know their way around. They know how this works. And the contrast with four years ago is so dramatic where you basically had this clown car being put together in real time with people who had no idea what they were doing. It really couldn't be more dramatic. And also the way Biden himself is not really rising to the Trumpian bait, the while Trump mm-hmm. is you know, throwing stuff around in all these you know, spittle-fleck conspiracy theories and everything. Biden's just kind of like tuning it out. I'm not on Twitter. I'm just doing my own thing, step by step by step, playing with the dogs, That's right. breaking my foot. He's, but you he's know, ignoring other, him. Other than that, yeah. normal. Just, you know, everybody just ignore the guy flinging poo around over there. Right. Just ignore it, and you know, it won't get any attention. Um, maybe I think we probably will need to uh, save for a future conversation once all of Biden's uh, yep. senior picks have been nominated. We can chat then about how they all stack up. But a, a few initial thoughts. Uh, first of all, you're exactly right. He has picked a team. You remember Doris Kearns Goodwin years ago mm-hmm. um, in the right. era of um, Obama and Clinton came out with the book Team of Rivals about Lincoln's cabinet. Um, this is really just a team of competence. It's it's extreme competence. These are people who know what they're doing. They are widely regarded as very capable. And it's notable that they are not flashy names. Um, you are not right. seeing... Bernie Sanders nominated as Secretary of State because he's a popular guy and was on cable news a lot. You're not seeing, you didn't even see Pete Buttigieg nominated to be UN ambassador, which was some speculation um, because, because you know Slayer Pete was so good going on Fox News for the campaign. You're not seeing <clears throat> the, the, the best known names in the popular imagination getting these spots. I would bet if you polled 100 Americans um, at least 99 of them would not know who Jake Sullivan was. They would say that name sounds familiar. Did I right. go to high school with him? Um, they probably wouldn't know Tony Blinken, even though he had been deputy secretary of state and a, a key advisor in the Obama administration. But he he was not somebody who was in the public spotlight. Um, it is anti-Trump in two ways. It is anti-Trump in the pure competence, as opposed to some of the appointees during the Trump administration. And it's anti-Trump in terms of going for people who know the jobs, do the jobs, not people who look good on television. Um, The contrast is also strong, Charlie, because all of these people who have been nominated to senior national security positions so far are people who have been part of a functioning national security process before. Whether you agreed or not with Obama's foreign policies, the process by which those policies were developed by having working group meetings within the national security agencies and departments brokered by the national security council moved up to deputies committee meetings, moved up to principals committee meetings, 
that had paperwork prepared in advance that the principals would read and then decide, that process largely worked. And now you have people coming into those positions who have seen it work at lower levels in the system. They know what this is supposed to be like. Contrast that with the Trump administration. You had people coming in like Rex Tillerson, Mike Pompeo, who had never been part of the executive branch, had never seen any system at any level. Even the so-called adults in the room, who were almost all generals. So you had Flynn, Kelly, Mattis, eventually McMaster, all of them very well regarded within the military realm, but they had not served as a deputy national security advisor or as a deputy secretary of state. Even they had not been part of a functioning national security process before. Nobody knew what they were doing and they were perfectly okay with that. It's going to be shocking just how systematic approaches to national security decisions are based on what we know already of this team. No, and it's going to be interesting to see how um, some of these appointments play out internally within the Democratic Party. And of course, I'm not an expert on the on the internal politics. I, I thought it was very interesting that uh, that uh, that Biden would have named Neera Tandon to be the head of the uh, OMB, which is obviously a crucial office because she has uh, been very, very outspoken and not terribly popular with the Bernie bros. I mean, I personally kind of like her, but it's, yeah. I don't think I have a lot of sway in this. In fact, the fact that I just said that probably actually hurts her, but it's <laughs> going to be interesting to see because if, if you looked at all on Bernie bro Twitter last night, you could see that they were pretty ticked off about that. That's the only one of the appointments that seems to be generating a significant amount of, of controversy as far as I can tell among the Democrats. But I do think it's dawning on the Democrats that because they don't control the Senate and because their margin in the House is ridiculously slim, mm-hmm. they don't have the luxury of a lot of dissension. They, well, they, have, they have to stick together unusually. It's going to be a real test for them. There's a, real, there's a real issue here, Charlie, that goes to bigger political issues than the personalities. You First of all, elections have consequences. We say that in many different contexts. But in this case, Bernie Sanders was not the nominee. Joe Biden was. And Joe Biden won the election. Therefore, the fact that Bernie Sanders or his bros or anyone affiliated with his wing of the party is entitled to any number of cabinet spots is patently ridiculous. Uh, For party unity, do you want to represent the spectrum that is the Democratic Party? Uh, Probably. And I suspect that that he will do that through his uh, advisors and his appointments over the long span of time. But there is no entitlement to getting cabinet positions because you're in the same party. Um, You you tried to be the nominee, you failed, you don't get to pick cabinet spots. So that's number one. Number two, we do not have a system where cabinet secretaries have an extraordinary amount of independent power. There are some countries that do. There are some countries where actually running the department or agency has immense amounts of independent power apart from the prime minister or the president. The United States, not so much. The policy comes from the White House, and those cabinet secretaries serve at the pleasure of the president. So all of this fighting over, you know, is there going to be someone at the labor department or the transportation department or the agriculture department who is more in line with AOC's values, at some level, it really doesn't matter because they're going to be executing Joe Biden's policies. So it's it's window dressing at some level. And honestly, would those people be better off remaining if they were to be 
pulled out of the House or the Senate, wouldn't they be better off remaining there where they're actually creating legislation and, and trying to get things passed rather than working at an agency or department where the president can simply say no to anything you want to do that's edgy? So what, what do you think he's going to do with the CIA director? I this mean, is I, a tricky I'm assu- one. Yeah, this is a I, tricky I'm one. Assuming, I, yeah, it is. That's what I mean. I mean, I, I'm assuming he's going to keep uh, Chris Ray at the FBI because he's got a term mm-hmm. and because he doesn't want to start off his presidency by doing what Trump did was firing an FBI director. Right on. But CIA um, tends In- to be a long, long tradition yeah. of switching with the parties. And yet Gina Haspel's kind of kept her head down. Yep. Clearly bucked to the Trump folks. What do you think? It wasn't always that way. Uh, some CIA directors have uh, kept between administrations. Um, uh, Dulles between Eisenhower and Kennedy. Uh, George Tenet between Bill Clinton and George Bush. And almost all directors will tell you that's the way it should be. It is not legislated the way that the FBI director's 10-year term is. But many CIA directors feel it should be kept as far from politics as possible. At the same time, they will tell you, you have to be close to the president to be an effective CIA director. If you're Jim Woolsey, who is CIA director for Bill Clinton, and you only see him alone once during the time you're CIA director, you've got a problem. So there's an inherent tension there. Um, Mike Hayden, for example, was perfectly willing to stay on as CIA director for Barack Obama, uh, but Obama wanted a clean change Mm -hmm. from the perception of some of the things that had happened even though they were policy decisions, things about interrogations and uh, things like that during the Bush administration. So he wanted a clean sweep. But most CIA directors will tell you it's best to stay on. Uh, There is one problem with that with Gina Haspel is she went to the State of the Union address, stood up and applauded during political lines. Um, That's a line that CIA Mm -hmm. directors traditionally have not crossed. Hmm. And it certainly provides a quite reasonable justification for President-elect Biden to to name a separate CIA director, even if he would like to go back to the tradition of keeping professionals in those positions across administrations. Um, Chris Ray, there's part of me that thinks that Biden and those around him wouldn't really mind if Trump did fire Chris Ray in a mm-hmm. fit of rage at some point in the next few weeks, uh, because that would leave the position essentially open for him to nominate who he wants. But Chris Ray is a professional. Chris Ray did not go to the State of the Union address, stand up and applaud, um, and in fact has has done a pretty good job as FBI director under extremely challenging conditions in the last couple of years. So yes, I suspect Ray will stay on. For CIA director, um, we had the uh, announcement this weekend. One of the things that did pop through my radar screen was that Tom Donilon took himself out of the running. Um senior national security aide in the Obama administration, who I think would have been a quite capable director, um, but not someone with background in intelligence. And that leaves us with the people who have been bandied about all being people who have had intelligence experience, ranging from Michael Morell, who was deputy director and acting director of the CIA, to several senior operations officers, um, to other former deputy directors like David Cohen. Um, one of the leading candidates uh, that I suspect, uh, if she is not in contention, she should be, is Sue Gordon. Um, Sue Gordon was the principal deputy director of national intelligence, or the PDDNI, um, for the Trump administration. And famously, when Dan Coats left, was not given the DNI mm. position, even though she was universally respected, um, simply out of 
presidential peak that she was seen as someone who worked with coats. Well, that was the job. But Sue Gordon is an immensely capable individual and would be an amazing CIA director, as would many of these others. The one thing that I hope Biden doesn't do is pick some you know, representative from the Intel Committee. Um, that tends not to go well. Um, we've had some success with outside people coming into the CIA and doing a good job as a director, but generally picking somebody who does not know the business, who does not know the people, who does not know the mission, it doesn't go as well. And when you have so many capable people who understand intelligence at a high level, picking a representative who would like to get her feet wet in the intelligence business uh, would probably be a mistake. Yeah, I think that that's uh, that that is that that's a good call. I think we've 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 seen what happens when you put uh, when you put people with lacking experience. And you know, just listening to you, a couple of things struck me was how how really truly remarkable it was that Barack Obama kept on George Bush's Secretary of Defense when he came in mm-hmm. after uh, after the two thousand eight election. Yeah, um, that has to be one of the most surprising. Uh, continuity decisions that I can remember in terms of the, you know, putting together a, a, a team, especially given how contentious the war in Iraq was. But I was, I'm reading his book now, and he basically said he just needed the continuity. He yes. needed the knowledge. He understood that he wasn't going to be able to make changes without having a lot of credibility. So he needed to surround himself with people who knew the nuances and who had the trust of the people in the ranks. But that was... Uh, um, I, I, I guess I'd never been struck by what an edgy decision that was to keep somebody on from an administration that in terms of foreign policy was, was pretty much the diametric, you know, opposite of what he had, you know, what he had run on. And, and purported to be, I mean, there's purported been some, be, yeah. there's been some study of how Obama foreign policy in many ways ended up echoing the yeah. uh, second term of the Bush administration. And Bob Gates may have had some role in that. Uh, Bob Gates, was certainly somebody affiliated with Republican presidents over the course of his career. Um, But he had started working back in the days of Lyndon Johnson, and he was a career intelligence and policy official. So it it was perhaps an edgy choice because no doubt he had plenty of people. This is Obama. No doubt he had Mm -hmm. plenty of people knocking on his door, wanting to be secretary of defense who, who had better Democratic Party credentials. But here is a wonk. Here is somebody who actually understood it at a time that the United States was in overseas conflict. Yeah, two and different wars. That was going to be yeah. central yeah. to the Obama administration from day one. So yes, I think that was a, a an edgy choice, as you said, but a good one. We don't really have any parallels for that right now. Um, we do have a new tradition, and, and this is one that does not have a long American history, but the last few administrations, we have had presidents who have kept on a cabinet member uh, or have named a cabinet member from the other party. And this is a case, even Trump, he kept on the, I think he actually elevated to the Department of Veterans Affairs front office, uh, someone who had been in the Obama leadership there as well. But Obama kept on Gates. And um, Bush kept on, was it Norman Mineta? I can't remember. But you've had this tradition now going back for decades where you've got at least a an attempt to show I'm reaching yeah. out to the other party. Um, it would surprise me if Biden doesn't have someone 
who who has some credentials on that side. Uh, I don't suspect a Mitt Romney being pulled out of the Senate for a senior position. I don't see something like that happening. Um, but don't be surprised if in one of these national security positions or one of the other agencies mm-hmm. or departments, um, you do see someone who is um, quite easily identified as a Republican who works with the Biden administration officially. David Priest, thank you so much for coming on this Monday after a long Thanksgiving weekend to sum everything up. Appreciate it very much. It was a pleasure. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.